0: To Divine Through Line, I'm Ma Ananda Srimati, sometimes known as Julie Pyatt, and I'm here to share with you musings and perspectives on what it really means to live a life divine. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey everybody, Cosmic Family, Divine Souls, welcome to the podcast. Uh, this is episode 101 of Divine Through Line. I want to thank everyone so much for the love that you showed me uh, on Instagram and via social media when I posted that we have surpassed 500,000 downloads for Divine Line. It's really incredible. Um, actually, the real number is almost 540,000 downloads, um, much in my... Uh, flow away. I didn't really check the numbers before I, I posted that. So <laughs> anyway, I'll save those 40K for the next milestone that we pass. Um, I am so incredibly uh, happy to be um, bringing you this episode this week. I had the immense honor and pleasure to sit down with uh, Buddhist Zen tea master, Wuda, who uh, himself considers himself uh, merely a student. Uh, which is one of the reasons why we all love him so much and really can relate to him. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. Uh, I wanted to give a little bit of a different intro and let you know that the music that I've selected for this week's podcast is a cover that I performed with my two sons, Tyler and Trapper. And as many of you guys know, we were in a band together over a seven-year period, and created songs, which are on my website, two albums, Mother of Mine and Jai Home. And this was truly one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. Um, My boys are getting ready to move out. They are in their twenties. I know we're late. I know I've had them longer than most, but they're going to be moving out next month. They're, um, halfway into, uh, creating their own music project which is going to be absolutely extraordinary and they're uh, moving into a band house and moving on with their life into the next stage of expressing themselves as artists and I just wanted to feature this song as sort of a bittersweet um, and also uh, just honoring them and, and, and thanking them for the incredible experience they gave me of agreeing to come into this life, choosing me as their mother and agreeing to explore music together for uh, over seven years was absolutely a divine experience. And so I am immensely uh, proud of them, uh, as as you can understand. Uh, as mothers and fathers, we are very proud of our children. Uh, but I'm also just, I feel completely blessed by the experience that we had together. And so this is the last recording that we did together to date. It was a f- couple years back, and it was a cover of Heady West, 500 Miles. And the reason that I've included it is because Wuda has a special fond affection for my boys. And we spent time in Barcelona uh, in October walking the streets and sharing uh, my experience of, of letting my boys grow up and go into their own life. And uh, Wuda was reassuring me that they have everything that they need and that... Um, my work uh was was well expressed with them so i know wuda is very fond of them and so i wanted to offer this uh to him and uh thank you for allowing me to share this part of my heart as i know so many parents um we go through so much emotion and experience uh trying to be the best guardians the best um, Uh, stewards of our children and also allow them to move and grow and change and shift and become the beings that is uh, uh, in their divine plan, the reason they came into a body. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this uh, and I hope you enjoy the song. I've included the entire song at the end of the episode as always. And a little bit more than usual on the front end. So anyway, thank you so much. Let's get into the episode with Tea Master Wuda. Are you a Zen Buddhist yes. monk? Yes, I am a Zen monk, yes. You're a Zen monk.
1: Well, actually, my, my teacher used to always say, we're, uh, because in Japan, uh, around 150 years ago, uh, due to some political changes in the Meiji Empire, uh, Buddhism started to take kind of its own, uh, its own different, very unique path in in Japan, and uh, so Japanese Japanese ordination and Japanese monkhood is very different than many of the other traditions in Buddhism. And so my teacher always used to say, "We're not monks and we're not lay people. I don't know what we are," <laughs> uh, because Japanese monks, and and this is something I celebrate and appreciate. So it's not something, you know that. Uh, that has any any negativity for me personally. I like it, but I only wear my robes when I teach or do ceremonies, or so not on a daily basis. So, and I like that because you know the I, I like being able to at least a little bit more blend in,
0: be a human, be a human. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's and right. But I think
0: that's one of the amazing things about you, and what it makes it just easy to be with you and share with you is because we feel you are so much like us, even though you've chosen some aspects of a very specific life that's very different than I would say the average person walking around. Um, it is that, um, that familiarity and that ability, um, uh, your human, your humanity that mm. makes it really beautiful. Your teachings are, I think more powerful because of your humanity.
1: Yeah, certainly. I'm, I very much feel like just a dude from Ohio. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, part of becoming a teacher for me that was very challenging was just that, you know, not something, it is a feeling that stays with me to this very day, which is that, you know, I'm not ready to help anyone else. I still have to deal with my own stuff and my own challenges in my own life. But, you know, something my teacher said uh, amongst many things that helped me with that with that feeling of like, I'm still a student. Who am I to teach someone else? Right. Mm-hmm. one he, a couple of things he said. One was, you know, you don't have to be ready. You just have to be okay with the fact that you're not ready. <laughs> that, that was one of the things he said. And that actually has more power than, than you think. And, uh, he often used to also say that the only masters in Zen are those who have, uh, who have died. Mm. So now he is a master. My teacher passed away. Right. Uh, the rest of us, we are students of Zen, right and uh, I very often remind my students of the same thing that if you want to call me a team master, then you know let's wait till I'm dead until then <laughs> I have still lots to learn and lots to grow, and uh over time, I've come to realize that you know, in order to be a teacher, you have to not only have been a good student but remain a good student because in order to have something to share, you have to learn, and the more that you learn, the more that you have to share.
0: Right, and I guess it goes on for eons and forever and ever, infinitely, eternally, the evolution and the role of student um, in a multiverse or omniversal sense is endless.
1: Yeah, I mean, even on a like meta level, the fact of the matter is, I'm a way better teacher now uh, than I was when I started six, six, seven years ago. So even the art of teaching itself has to be learned. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know... Some, that's a, something else that uh, that uh, a wise person once said to me is like you know you don't have to be the teacher that you will be when you're eighty or ninety right mm-hmm.
0: now, right? And sort of begin where you are. Mm. I think that for me, uh, something that that I've learned through experience is when I share everything. You know, everything that I share <laughs> that I talk about is from my own personal experience. And when you um, when you teach from that place or share from that space, I think it's a very clean, authentic, pretty safe place uh, uh. because it's simply one fractal or one perspective of one's personal experience. And that cannot be wrong or, um, you know, there's no answer to that. It's, it is a journey. It's a path. We have
1: to receive into that place too. The Buddha said the measure of any, any truth, any teaching, is that it's in concordance with the teachings of the wise on one hand and then it's in concordance with your own experience. On the other hand, mm. and if those both if both of those aren't there, then um, you know that that's that's not your truth. Mm-hmm. At least not now. Maybe later. Mm-hmm. We don't need to uh, orient towards it in in a way. You know, one of the things that uh, that I was sharing the other day that has been so powerful for me, living more than half my life now in the East, is that you know I think in the West we have what can be a barrier. In that we're we're often taught to orient towards teachings as arguments, teachings as philosophical stances. So mm-hmm. that when the teacher is making a pronunciation, they're making they're taking a philosophical stance, and our job then is to be like skeptical or cynical and find the you know weak points in that, or to address that teaching as though it's an argument, as though it's trying to convince us of something. And uh, I think the Eastern approach, at least certainly the Buddhist approach, is that. Teachings are invitations to explore. The Buddha said often, pasiko," which means come and see. Mm -hmm. So instead of, I give a teaching and you regard it as me making a pronunciation on the way things are. Mm -hmm. And then you have to now make a decision, do you agree or not with that perspective on the way things are. It's a much more healthy attitude to take towards teachings if we regard them and orient towards them as invitations to You know, what happens when I look at the world this way? What happens when I look at the world this way? What happens, you know, because um, there's a lightness that comes with that. Mm -hmm. With that that openness to exploring uh, perspectives. And that also helps with, you know, something that we practice a lot in Buddhism, which is compassionate listening, right? Listening with empathy, learning to hear you know my my zen teacher used to always say right always find the truth in the other's perspective mm. that's the way of zen right so mm. always try to find the truth in the perspective of the other and and there always is some truth even if it's very clouded or diluted there's 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 truth in their perspective and and so when you have that lightness in your in your, with regards to your exploration mm. then uh that makes that listening practice a lot easier you can mm-hmm listen to others and and kind of hear and feel where they're coming from, even when it's critical, actually, mm-hmm. right? Even when it's critical, you can, um, you know, sometimes criticism comes smeared with the the ego and the constrictions of that individual. So they've, they've, they've covered it in their anger or their, you know, whatever other of their of in their mind, in their, them, but inside of it maybe is, is a kernel of something that could show mm-hmm. you some way that you could you know you could be better or do better or some place where you're blind about yourself right so if you can learn to like wash off the <laughs> their stuff because mm-hmm. we don't need that we don't need to accept gifts from mm-hmm. other people right we have enough in ourselves I don't need the gifts of others right uh, so so if we can wash that off you can learn to you know find the what the what the truth is in it and learn to, um, learn to be in that more, which I think, you know, one of the primary, one of the primary levels that we have to kind of break through if we're going to, if we're going to cultivate ourselves, one of the like levels of like smaller mind that we have to kind of get through, uh, is, is the, is getting to the place where you're willing to face all of your own stuff, mm-hmm. it's, it's, this isn't the space where you this isn't the space where you face all of it, but the space where you're willing to face all of it.
2: Okay. Uh huh.
1: So you're not, you're not going to you, you know facing all of it m- might take a long time. We have one of the Bodhisattva <laughs> vows that we take is you know en- endless blind passions. I vow to uproot them all. Mm. So there's a lot maybe, but I can cultivate right now a willingness to face all my stuff, all my shadow, all my things, all my stuff inside, and that's a that's a that's a really powerful place to be where you're you're ready to face that. One of the affirmations that I worked with almost every day for many many years that's related to this. Uh, it's still there. I still use it, but not every day anymore because that time's kind of passed. But there was a almost a decade where it was very present in my work and self-cultivation and very simply the in, in affirmation form it, it is what am i defending what mm-hmm. am i defending what am i defending and i you know i'd ask myself that a lot what am i defending I would, I would use that in my own moral inventory i would use that in you know reflection on my mistakes and how to learn from grow from them so they're not mistakes anymore they're right that's something my teacher used to say right if you reflect and grow from your mistakes then they're not mistakes anymore they're food right? So, I found actually quite conclusively, and I, I could only, of course, with regards to something like this, speak on behalf of myself, so I don't know about anyone else, but at least in terms of Wudah, I found in those 10 years of working with that affirmation every day, that 100%, not 99, not even 99.9, 100% of the time, I was always defending the parts of myself that I don't want to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I was always defending the worst parts of myself. I was always defending the ego, whatever you want to call that, right? That lower self. I was always defending the things that, you know, I don't want to be because my highest self, my, my truth, my, my beautiful soul, whatever you want to call that part, my Buddha nature, that part doesn't need defending. Mm-hmm. Right? It glares true and bright on its own, and it doesn't require anyone to defend it for any reason. So I was always defending things and then feeling like wow you know I'm defending something that I don't even really love about myself something that I'd rather right? and so I began to like kind of become more vulnerable like o- open up and allow that part to be poked right and and allow that poking eventually to Maybe you could think of it as like break break some of that stuff up, mm-hmm. break some of those things up, and and then you know through that practice developed a real willingness to face my blind passions, because the fact that, that's the fact is that a lot of our stuff we we're aware of it. It's easier to see in others than mm-hmm. in ourselves, right? But you know my Zen teacher always said, right? You spot it, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> so so then you know. I'm willing to accept the fact that, uh, that that there's parts of me that are blind, mm-hmm. and that I'm willing to look at them, and that there there doesn't have to be any negativity with that. You know, in Buddhism we have these ten chains, and two of them are really peculiar, especially from a Western perspective, because one of them you could translate as guilt, right? Right. And one of them you could translate as like shamelessness. So, on the one hand, it's saying, like, you know, guilt is a bondage, a chain. It literally would be translated as chain, these ten. And then on the other hand, it's saying, like, being shameless is also a chain. Right? So, I, I've, I've, I've meditated on that a lot for a long, long time. And I kind of, you know, finally kind of penetrated through it and realized the insight in this. Which is that... Guilt obviously is a is a burden and a and a chain that prevents us from being free and from being the people that we want to be. But kind of where the translation gets a little bit weird and a little bit hard is you know the 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 sh- in the shamelessness one. I started translating it different, and that brought a lot of insight. So I started saying like instead of saying sh- you know shamelessness is a bondage, I start I tr- started to think about the opposite and what that would be, and I started to realize kind of what positive shame is, right? Guiltless shame. Mm -hmm. So, and then I, you know, if you penetrate that deeply, where that takes you is to a place where, let's say, you know, in the morning, I do something that, that comes from my lower self. I react. I say something negative to someone I love. You know, I know in my highest self that I should say, my darling, I love you. I see that you're upset. How can I help? That's what I should say right but then let's say on this day I don't mm-hmm. I fall down like we all do right mm-hmm. and now it's nighttime and I'm reflecting on that right and I'm reflecting on it with shame in the sense that I don't want to repeat that behavior mm-hmm. right not in a guilty sense like I'm no good right the positive part is that the mind the mind that is looking back on that action with shame is not the same mind that did it. This mind wouldn't do it. This mind would say, my darling, right? I love you. <laughs> right, do you see? Yes. So this mind has within it the seeds of mm-hmm. overcoming that habit pattern.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This mind has within it uh, space. This mind, obviously if this mind is ashamed of that behavior, this mind wouldn't do it. Right? If, it if, if in that moment of reflection, the same situation occurred i would behave properly
2: mm-hmm.
1: right so it's not it's not about it's not about guilt it's not about being you know thinking negatively about yourself but it is about the necessity also for like moral inventory for reflection on one's behavior for conscious for having a conscious we need a conscience. Mm-hmm. that's what <laughs> makes us good people it's not about making mistakes or not we all make mistakes but having a conscious is You know Mm -hmm. what can happen with the with the guilt one is that sometimes people with a conscience right they reflect on their own uh, negativities and mistakes and then they feel bad about themselves right they feel bad about themselves and they feel they're not good when actually if they would just take that little guilt part out having Mm -hmm. a conscience is is actually the sign of a good person Mm -hmm. because it means you have a moral compass you're you're driven to be good Otherwise, you wouldn't be. There would be no shame,
0: right? Right. So,
1: so I th- this is this is where I've kind of uh, arrived with it, with with that teaching anyway, and the balance that I have with it, and I try to I try to work in that way, in a sense of uh, being sure to continue to take my own moral inventory and reflect on my actions and how I can learn and grow from them, mm-hmm. but at the same time, uh, not feel guilty. Right, So in Zen, we practice this kind of like present moment sword, like the warrior sword kind of in the ground. And it's a stance of like, you know, my teacher would call it absolute forgiveness and zero tolerance. That's what he would call it, like the two sides of the blades. Mm -hmm. So in the past, there's just absolute forgiveness and compassion. Like, you know, I did the best I could with the mind that I had at that time. Complete forgiveness and acceptance Mm -hmm. of all that I've done. And because it can't be undone. Mm -hmm. And it is what it is. And and in that moment, even if my mind was clouded by anger or whatever it was, I did the best that I could. But then zero tolerance for the future. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we can allow the forgiveness that we give ourselves to the past to pollute the future in the sense that we give a kind of unconscious permission to repeat to repeat mm. like there's an unconscious like mm-hmm. you know i forgive you but then in that forgiveness of self which is so important mm-hmm. we don't throw that out but in that maybe subtly it's a little bit of an unconscious like and i permit you to do it again right so right. that's where the zero tolerance comes in like mm-hmm. i you know with all my spirit like never you know not once not never you have you do not have my permission this this ego in me does not have my permission to be angry mm-hmm or, you know, we could just stick with that example. You know, I don't give this mind permission to be angry, mm-hmm. right? If he's going to do it, he's going to have to, it's going to have to happen when I'm unconscious. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not on my watch.
0: Right. I love that. I love that. I love compassionate listening. That's a, that's very powerful. I think that's very applicable and a very, uh, amazing tool, uh, when faced with that criticism, that's wrapped in you know many different things emotions and someone's personal experience but if you can really sort of settle into that compassionate listening and really extend into the other person and see their point of view walk in their shoes and try to understand well how did this being uh you know pick up this perspective or what are the elements in this being's life that would inform that kind of response and it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Ananda Moima, a revered Indian saint. And uh, she said, every man is right from his own point of view. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I refer to that a lot um, because there are so many different perspectives and in every kind of life form from every, you know, every aspect of the multiverse and, and everywhere. So it's something that, that I reflect a lot of, on you know quite a bit and try to use those feelings when I try to address a situation for res- for resolution or for peacemaking or for coming to an agreement, um, even for agreeing to disagree, but you know, at least within that, it's like employing the, you know, the human empathy and, and what makes us so special, the human being so special is that empathy that we, that we all have. Um, and uh, you and I uh, just met up in Barcelona. Yeah. <laughs> I, just wanna, I was lucky enough to come and see you for tea ceremony there. And uh, we found ourselves in the midst of uh, an interesting moment in time. And it was a time of polit- political unrest. And we, you know, I was on my way to your tea ceremony and there were huge demonstrations and the, you know, attention was definitely building. There were choppers flying overhead and I kind of got lost at one moment and was wondering if I, you know, was going to turn back to the hotel. And yet, you know, we sat together and you poured this beautiful tea in this amazing ceremony with beautiful individuals. And we made space for peace or space for something else. Um, I'm not quite sure. Um, but as a, you know, I wanted to take this opportunity, this blessed time that we have, that you're actually here in Malibu and that you're at my home. So thank you for coming. Um, but I wanted I wanted to really uh, use this podcast as an opportunity to address this very, um, very intense time on planet Earth with so many events that are, uh, really full of a lot of suffering. We, you know, we have different political events. We had the mass shooting in Las Vegas, um, last week. And I think as, um, you know, spiritual teachers or people that are trying to, uh, um, give people some tools or some perspective of how does one, how does one think like, like what is right thinking in those situations? And from your perspective of Zen Buddhism or just Buddha's perspective, you know, what is your answer when somebody, uh, when you see, for instance, you know, that tragedy happen in Las Vegas with, you know, a shooter actually, you know, taking out humans with, you know, high powered weapons. Uh, where are we with that experience on planet earth today? Do you, can you share some thoughts?
1: I mean, the, The Zen answer is always like going to be to to have some perspective, right? Like the bigger perspective, like you know Blake Shelley's poem. I am Osmandias, King of Kings, and all around is just sand. You know, it's the poem about the. I met a traveler from a faraway land, and there was a statue of a great ruler surrounded by sand in the middle of the desert, and it says on the on the pedestal, "I am Osmandias, King of Kings. Tremble before me." I rule all, kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? But then now it's all desert, right? <laughs> so you know, Rome has risen and fallen, and this too shall rise and fall. And uh, this is a huge universe. And so, ultimately, we are smack dab in the middle of eternity. Uh, time forever in all directions, and space forever in all directions. We're smack dab in the middle of infinity. And, uh, there's a, there's a lot of space and it's all around us mm-hmm. and it's actually all through us too. And the difference between an imaginary world without murder and this world is that this world's real.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so since it's the only real world, right. it's also the only perfect world.
2: Mm-hmm
1: and uh when we when we get into some perspective like that and we let go and we lighten up a little bit and we breathe and we come to our hearts then actually cuz the aim of this is not to be a zombie right then actually from that heart space we're in a position to actually do something mm-hmm. to respond instead of react mm-hmm. right and of course you know all of this starts with me you know as cliche as it sounds be the change you want to see in the world mm-hmm. right as gandhi said uh, and uh, so in another of the i mentioned earlier the bodhisattva vow of uh, you know endless blind passions i vow to uproot them all the first one is actually uh, though beings are limitless i vow to save them all and my teacher used to say that that starts with though beings are limitless i vow to save them all from my stuff Right. Yeah. like right. I can make this world that much more beautiful by choosing positivity mm-hmm. by speaking kindly to others by sharing love by, uh, by choosing hope I, I like a lot one of the lines as cheesy as it's going to sound one of the lines from the book and, and eventually the movie The Hobbit where Gladriel <laughs> asks Gandalf why the little people why the hobbits? Why are you bringing these people on this like great journey? And he says, uh, Saruman thinks that that the world is is saved by the deeds of great men. But I think that the darkness is held at bay by the all of the little acts of love and light all around the world. Mm.
2: That's and, beautiful.
1: Uh, that's beautiful. I I really always like that. I get a little teary eyed when that when mm-hmm. that, when I read that or see that in the movie. So. I think the same. You know, a lot uh, there's a lot of goodness. And the thing is, the darkness makes a lot more noise. So, you know, all those little smiles and hugs and people donating money and people taking meditation retreats right now as we're doing this podcast around the world, people are in the middle of beautiful retreats and doing meditation and working on themselves and sharing love, and there's no news reporters there. But then one confused brother you know, forgets who he is and he forgets his father and the honor of his family and he does something terrible like go shoot some people and then they all swarm there and they talk about that for months and months and months and months and they Mm -hmm. they fear monger it and all that's going to do is make some other brother forget himself and forget his father and forget his honor and and, uh, do something similar maybe. So you know there's there's a lot of light in the world and i i choose to focus on that positivity and be a part of the healing and a part of the medicine and for me that's really enough i don't it's not necessary for, to win it's not even a battle for me mm-hmm. so um you know the reward for being a part of the medicine is a life as part of the medicine
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh i think also the da- there's a danger in in uh, ursula guin said it really well what you what you resist persists, right? So the more entrenched I get as a protester, the more the other brother on the other side gets entrenched in his views.
0: Right, so and if we, you're fighting for peace, you're still fighting.
1: That's right, that's right, yeah. They When they did the first uh, uh, anti-war rallies in Washington during the 60s, they actually invited Mother Teresa and she said no. Hmm. And, and then, you know, th- They were confused a little bit and asked her why. And she said, uh, if you have a pro-love rally, I'll come.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So
1: she wasn't interested in going to an anti-war rally or an anti-anything rally. Right. But Mm -hmm. if you have a pro-love rally, I'll Mm -hmm. come. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there is a very real danger that if you're angry because there's angry people in the world, then you just become another angry person. Yes. It's like the Tar Baby. You know that story in the South? The farmer wants to catch the fox, so he puts out the tar baby. And the fox comes and is like, quit looking at me. And then, of course, it doesn't because it's made of tar. And then he punches it and his hand gets stuck. And then he's kind of like, if you don't let go of my hand, I'm going to hit you with the other hand. Right. And if you don't let go of both my hands, I'm going to kick you, so on and so on. And he's all caught up in the tar. So you can't you can't engage the tar baby. Or right. you just get tar on you. Right. Mm. So I think the solution is is love and showing up and more people with stronger hearts. You know, the people that are easy to love don't really need our love because they're easy to love. Right. It's the people that are hard to love that need love. Mm. And most of those people are, most if not all of those people are hard to love because they weren't loved enough in their life Mm. until now. So the more compassion we cultivate, the more heart (coughs) we cultivate, the more... Love we cultivate in ourselves, the more we can, we can spread that and, and the more we can, like you said, learn to see other people's perspectives and uh, create that space of compassion, of compassionate listening, which is just kind of like a field. That's what we try to do with tea. You know, in Taiwan, we go every month and serve roadside tea. And there's no teachings, there's no philosophy. We just set up this space on the side of the road with the aim of two things. One, we try to fill the space with presence. And two, we try to fill the space with loving kindness and then pass us by, stop and have a bowl. But they can do with the space anything they want. And if they want to chat, if they want to sit in silence, whatever they want to do with the space, there's no philosophy, there's no teaching, there's just a bowl of tea. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing the effect that this has on on people. Some people you know, are walking by the street, going to somewhere, some kind of appointment, and they stop for a bowl, and then we find... And this has happened actually many, many times because we've been doing this like eight years now. Somebody will stop, have a bowl. Then they're like, you know, I got to go. I got this appointment. They walk away. And then like 20 minutes later, they come back and sit down. Like, I, can- I canceled my appointment. And they end up staying there like the whole day because we usually sit there the whole day. So they end up staying there the whole day, just sitting there watching the flow of other people. And they're free to do so. That's the point. It's just a space, right? So it's about making a making a space in which people can... Can be in. And that's kinda of what I have mentioned earlier about perspective too. Like the whole earth's in that space. All mm-hmm. the time. It's in emptiness and emptiness is through it. So if you see a picture from the earth of the earth from space, it's very peaceful, no? Very much. It's very nice. It's quiet. It's peaceful. There's not like all that billions of egos and madness is all mind made. Right? It's all mind made. It's not the nature of things. So the nature of things is already in balance, right? It's, there's already rhythm. We're the ones that are out of harmony. We're mm-hmm. the ones who are disconnect or discordant. And uh, so we have to find that rhythm again. And that rhythm, you know, that rhythm's found inside of us. It's in our body. When you were in your mother, your heart was beating in perfect rhythm with hers, nine beats for every measure, nine mm-hmm. beats to one. And the only time the baby's not in rhythm is when the mother's upset or stressed or whatever, right? And then you came out and you you know, your own rhythm started. The rhythm of your breath and your heart and your you know, all that stuff and it's a rhythm to everything. And the more we can live kind of uh, listening to it and being a part being in in tune with it the more uh life can can flow through us. Mm. The more its current can be our current, and we can work together.
0: Yeah, and if you could share a little bit about the inner workings of tea, and just for the listeners, um, some who maybe don't know about your ashram in Taiwan and the work that you're doing, but... Um, talk to us about the nature of this tea. Why is this tea different from uh tea that you drink from the store and what is the practice or the space or the energy that this tea cultivates?
1: Well, I think the, the, the main difference, and I'm not, you know, I don't think we need, we need to like, uh, again, the Zen way is to, is to take out ores and put in ants, right? <laughs> yeah. So we like tea, as medicine or as beverage we don't need that or we can say and and i'm okay with that you know tea can be a very healthy beverage when it's produced sustainably organically certainly better than soda or other things that have processed sugar and other unhealthy ingredients but so i wouldn't want to impose the approach that that i have towards tea onto anyone else and and allow people to drink tea the way that they they already are but for us um there's kind of two, a twofold shift that uh makes tea a lot more transformative one is is a shift from tea as beverage to tea as medicine right which actually has you know thousands and thousands of years of heritage right so the recreationalization and commoditization of tea you know the recreational use as a beverage is very very modern how modern depends where you are some places as little as 10 years some places not at all yet and other places 50 years and other places you know eight, a few a few centuries just depends but that is a more modern approach behind that you have thousands of years of ts medicine sadly a lot of books and materials and stuff kind of jump over that time usually in a single sentence right at the start of the book which is something to the effect of you know for thousands of years tea was medicine to chinese people (laughs) and then we're at the beverage right but what does that mean for those thousands of years tea was medicine to chinese people what kind of medicine what what for what are you talking about like that's i wrote a whole book about that one sentence it's not it's a very deep topic i could write 10 more so that's kind of the first shift in orientation is, is a shift from T.S beverage to tea as, uh, as, as plant medicine. right So that's, that's the first kind of uh, orientation shift or shift in approach. The second then shift in approach is uh, shifting from tea drinking to tea ceremony. right Tea drinking is something that happens in cafes and kitchens and restaurants. Tea ceremony is something that happens in a temple. Right. Tea drinking, not entirely transformative, not all that transformative in the life of a person. Tea ceremony certainly is. So these are the kind of two orientation shifts. And um, again, my perspective is inviting people to make that shift. And maybe not all the time, but uh, more of an invitation to see what happens when that when those two shifts happen, as opposed to like, you know, that's how tea should be. and uh, And if you're not doing it that way, then... It's not right or something, you know. Again, I think as long as the tea is it's, itself is sustainably produced and not harming the earth, right? Then certainly it, it is, is a very, very healthy alternative as even as a beverage to most to many of the other beverages that are out there.
0: And so if I can just um take a pause right there, um how important from a Zen perspective is it to Live your life in a way that's sustainable to the earth. Like, what is the Zen perspective on that?
1: Well, certainly. I mean, my perspective is that you know, it it you know, the patriarch, one of the patriarchs of my, one of the patriarchs of my my, my lineage is is Dogen Dogen Zenji. He's a Japanese uh, Zen Zen master from long ago, and uh, he 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 literally kind of said something that uh, uh, this other American translated quite, I mean, it, it's loose translation, but it's also like pretty close to the original, which is that the, he said the Buddha way is to, is to not be a jerk, like, <laughs> like literally just like, stop being a jerk, that's it, that's the way. And uh, he actually also said like, even if the whole world is busy doing jerky things, it's still worthwhile to not be a jerk, right? and uh that's challenging nowadays because my teachers talk about these things like uh, ghost karmas in the sense that like people in ancient times like the you know because karma means action cause and effect so the 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 effects of their behavior were immediately apparent because every they lived in a small village and everybody knows everybody about everything about everybody's business and everything like you know sometimes i go to china i go to this very small village i've been going there like 20 years and and it's amazing like how quick everybody knows everything like we the last time i was there we went uh we had just come from huangshan yellow mountain and we had been hiking for seven days right and so i arrived at this small village after this was our annual global trip and i had just taken 40 people on this long hike and super sore all over my body and i arrived at this small village where i was going after i separated from everybody else i went to this village just i've been staying with this chinese family for like 20 years and so I, went, I was going to visit them and I arrived at the village and I checked into my hotel and right down the street, there's a place where they soak your feet and then they give you a, like a foot massage for 30 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. So I've, I went and did that. It was late. It was like, you know, to 1030 when I arrived on the train to, to the town, checked into my hotel, went to the foot massage place, got my foot rubbed. And then the next morning, my friend came and picked me up at like seven and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't take you to get a foot massage. You had to go yourself. Like, how did you know I got a foot massage? in Like overnight, the whole village already knew that the Westerner had gone to get a foot massage. So back in the day, all of our kind of actions and like if you did, if you said something mean to Joe, everybody in the village knew about it like three hours later. And like the repercussions of your actions were really apparent, right? And reflected back to you right away. But nowadays, there's all these like, what you know, what my teacher called ghost karmas. Like, you know, you go to the store and you buy some quinoa and that might be, having an adverse effect on somebody's life on the other side of the planet. And you're like, you're just not aware of it because it's a whole like chain of like, and this makes it really hard to not be a jerk. Because you just want like a, you just want a, a t-shirt, like like an undershirt, not like a, you know, young people's t-shirt. Like you want an undershirt and you go buy an undershirt. And maybe that undershirt was made in a way that wasn't fair trade. And pe- people in Bangladesh were working, you know, Children, even maybe. You know. So,
0: so is it your perspective that if I go and buy a T-shirt and and uh, and let's say a child in in Bangladesh was you know harmed in that, am I? Is that my bad? Like, is that my bad because I didn't find out where the shirt was made?
1: Yeah, I mean, not even that. It's it, the whole thing's all of our bad. It's all of our bad, right? <laughs> right? Let let's let's just let's just take responsibility for the whole thing. I mean, that that might seem like that's scary, but it's not. It's liberating. Like own it, you're not, you're not a victim. You're not a victim, and you're not, and you're not. You know, I love. There's a Hopi saying that they 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 have that just tickles me everywhere. They say we are the ones we've been waiting for. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. You know that you're uh, living more consciously. That's great. That's wonderful. But that doesn't that doesn't mean you're not related or or a part of the. Gang banging in 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 East L.A. If some gangsters are committing violence now, that that's not you know. First of all, that violence, like own it. It's inside of you too. Right. You have it, mm-hmm. and, and and you you know you you maybe through cultivation you're not manifesting it. You're not you're not being outwardly violent, but it can be there in your vi- in your mind. The seeds of it are there. It's in your people, mm-hmm. right? All throughout the history of your ancestors. Many of them were murderers. Yes. Many, and, and many of it, we're all here because of that. We're all part of it, right? There's no, you, you have to own it all, right? Mm-hmm. No Hitler, no Wuda. Literally, my gr- both grandparents on both sides met in World War II. Two nurses and two uh, very different soldiers. But both sides, my grandparents met in World War II. So quite literally,
2: mm-hmm.
1: no Hitler, no Wuda. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're all, we're, we're a part of it. We're responsible for the whole thing and uh you can't it's not gonna your heart's not gonna let you find some corner of the world to go escape to and try to find your own selfish happiness because in order to do that you have to kind of like cover your eyes and cover your ears and (laughs) cover your heart and you can't like you just can't the the the, there's there's a lot of suffering out there and there's it's, it's big so we uh you know and owning it is is a kind of liberating feeling it's not scary like take 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 your place in it take take the fact that like you're you know i i'm I, and i have i have a strong motivating warrior's rage about it all as well i can cry i'm tired of not having a place on this earth where i can hold my head up the way my ancestors did you know because the land what we're doing to the land and to my mother and that that pain and there's i i can't go to the woods and sit in a little grove and pretend like that's not happening because as soon as i connect to that grove she's gonna start saying hey like look look what they're doing to my sisters over there and what they're doing to those other animals so i'm you know certainly i'm tired on on a strong in a strong way of of that and and very very motivated to to work for a world in which that that's greener etc but despite that right or in the face of that i choose hope i choose love i choose you and i choose me we are the ones that we've been waiting for i choose you tag you're it tag
0: hashtag You know, I always hashtag that. We are the ones we've been waiting for.
1: Yeah, tag, you're it. Yeah. Right? Go, go. you know, be the change. And that's where taking responsibility, you know, that's what it's really about. Like, you know, there's infinite ways to connect. There's infinite ways to to help be a part Mm -hmm. of the change and the positivity from the little things of choosing to treat people, like, with dignity and nobility, Right, which is the Buddha way, like like Dogen said, don't be a jerk, be a noble person. The Buddha talked a lot about being a noble person, right? Mm-hmm. Not noble in the sense of like some kind of birthright, right? Not that kind of noble, but noble like, you know, inner nobility, what we all have inside of us, and we have it. My teacher used to do this meditation, which might sound a little bit cheesy and weird, but it's actually quite powerful. He would uh, he would ask you to like, you know, visualize a, a moment in which, let's say you lost your temper, and, you know, what was your body language like? What did it feel like? What did you say? All the, like, as much as you can remember about it. And then he would say, imagine now if, if you know, it sounds almost like a TV show, but imagine now if if the Buddha or any other saint you admire, but let's say the Buddha, if, imagine the Buddha took over your body and you were kind of a ghost that got to watch or a camera that got to watch. How would he have behave in that same situation?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? What would be his body language? What would he have said in that situation? Right? Mm -hmm. I know what he'd say. He'd say, My my darling, I love you. I see that you're upset. Mm -hmm. How can I help? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So then at the end of that meditation, it's amazing that everybody in the room has a very clear vision of what the Buddha would do. Very clear. They can describe his body language, they can describe what he would say, etc. And then my teacher would kind of drop the Zen bomb, which is kind of like, and yet, you know, none of us here have ever met the Buddha, right? So how do you know what that saintly person would do in that situation? Where did that come from? Mm. Obviously, it came from inside of you,
2: right?
1: Obviously, you, some part of you, your highest self knew how to stand, how to, how to say Mm -hmm. what to say, Right that because you were envisioning the buddha doing that it wasn't really the buddha so inside of us there is uh there is an awakened person there's a connected person there's a noble person and uh you know i think one of the one of the dangers of the modern lifestyle is that we we connect so much through machines and that gives anonymity which also gives the shadow part of ourselves kind of freedom to you know like so I, I've had actual literal experiences where somebody was very critical online in a in a very egoic way, and then you meet them in person and they're not like that <laughs> right right polite and kind and
2: mm.
1: like they would never say those things so like you know that's even th- even that's another dimension of those kinds of ghost karmas we were talking about earlier. Right where mm-hmm. you can catch yourself. I certainly have caught myself, like you know, even in a like if I walked into a shop, and 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 you know I don't do this because I don't have money. But let's say you know there's this situation, and I'm buying something or something, and and the transaction is a little something's going wrong maybe with their machine or you know whatever, and and I would be patient and polite and. I would look in in that person's eyes and find friendship and and uh but if if it's all online then then what happens what arises in you like the desire to write a really nasty email and, and you know well, how dare you have this machine this website that doesn't work and, and blah, demand blah, and, service. Blah, and you wouldn't do that right mm. so in all these ways you know it's just about really showing up and being noble that's the kind of small stuff that we can do every day is is to is, is to love kindness and that's that's more powerful than kindness because mm. people can be kind for all kinds of reasons you can be <laughs> kind because you want something right but if you love kindness itself right just love kindness and and uh, and bring kindness and and uh you know also let go of the idea that, that there's a that there's a possibility of of sati- of personal satisfaction in 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 this transient nonsense mm-hmm. right in Zen we have a saying right no matter how much you strive in the transient world it will never enrich your life and the and then the next second phase of that saying is but if you make the transient world the object of your meditation of your zazen it will not only enrich your life it will increase your Buddha Dharma, which is like your wisdom. Hmm. But you don't really need that last clause. You can just say, no matter how much you strive in the transient world, it will not enrich your life. But if you make the transient world, the object of your hmm. meditation, it will enrich your life. So when you let go of that, that that possibility of personal gratification in the transient world, which is not possible, because you, you first of all, it's a really hard to make it in any way resemble your vision of what you think it should be.
2: Right. Even
1: a corner of it. Even if you just say, like, I just, my career or my relationship or some, like, little part of this vast world, and you want that to be, resemble your vision of what you think it should be, even that's really a struggle. And and usually if we get that in order, then the other parts <laughs> right. are, are, are neglected and, and, and have problems. And my experience, I don't know about your experience or any of the listeners' experience, but my experience on this life seems to be that the more that I don't want something to happen, <laughs> right. the more the world gives it to me like mashed potatoes on a plate. It's of like, course. oh, you don't like that? <laughs> There's some more. It's, <laughs> There's some more. It's a
0: complete setup. That's how it happens.
1: Yeah, and the, and the, and the, the other thing about that is that even, even if you do get it in order, you come up against a second very real naked truth which is that it won't stay put right so in the book of changes in the oracle the 63rd hexagram is the perfect one that's when all the yin and yang lines are in the perfect order everything is balanced everything is ordered but it comes usually in the commentaries of both confucius and Duke Zhou. there's a warning in this because if everything is in perfect order there's only one thing can happen now and that's shiva like it's going to get broken (laughs) so it can go be something else because that's the freedom of this world So, you know, if you're at the peak of the mountain, there's only one direction to go now. If everything's in order, it's going to, it's just going to start to come apart. Mm -hmm. And so really where we go wrong, most of us is that, you know, where a lot of our suffering is, and this could relate to even the like political stuff going on or somebody doing something that we would rather they didn't do, even if it's, you know, very terrible is, you know, we, we invest energy striving in that transient world we invest energy trying to make a world that suits our vision right and so a lot of the buddhist saints one in particular that i like a lot is i like him for other reasons um he he's he's a warrior of of love and compassion he actually and this doesn't have to be taken literally it can just be an emblem of of the kind of person that i would like to be but in buddhist mythology uh, Dizang took a vow and and went to hell and he's going to stay there until all, until it's emptied. So mm-hmm. he's just down there like meditating and bringing compassion until oh. all the until all the hells are emptied. And you don't have to take that literally, but usually he's he's holding what's called the jintamani in in Sanskrit, which means the wish-fulfilling jewel. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a trick. Right? The wish-fulfilling jewel, what it, you know, because we say for the enlightened one all their desires come true. But that's because they, they have realized that the, the way is to stop trying to make a world that suits your vision and start making a vision that suits the world. Mm. So in other words, all their desires come true because they wish for this. And you have the Chintamani because the Chintamani is the mind. Because in this mind, we can wish for and create anything. I mean, look at, we were earlier talking about Tolkien. That brother created a
2: whole world with (laughs) languages
1: and history, and right? This is a powerful, powerful thing, this mind, right? It's a wish-fulfilling jewel. Mm -hmm. Not only can we use it to imagine any possible thing, we can also use it to create very, very amazing things like 100-story buildings and go to the moon and et cetera, et cetera, right? So this mind is just, it is the Chintamani. So what we're being invited to do in this teaching, right? is to ask ourselves to 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 really deeply ask you know what does it feel like to have this moment sitting right here in this gorgeous place in Malibu with my dear sister what if what if this is all you've ever wished for
2: mm.
1: what's that feel like if this is it if you've arrived
0: beautiful
2: uh, yeah
1: <laughs> and and letting go of that struggle to uh, make make the world into something that you envision it to be. Because, uh, you know, the many of the problems with your visions is that your visions, you're not God, you can't envision a whole world. You, you're just envisioning one part of it. And even on the level of work, because again, you know, one of the criticisms often comes to Buddhism when you start doing these kind of contemplations is that we're promoting like zombieism or like non-participation. And that's not true, right? Because actually until you accept this world and love it as it is you can't work with it mhm right it's like it's like if you're if you have a child who has a behavioral problem if you if you want to really work with that you have to you have to love them and accept them for who they are and and and, re- and that's where it starts the the change comes from that if you reject them or say this isn't you know, the child I wanted or that I imagined, right? <laughs> right? When I when I was just getting married and imagining having a child. Right. It wasn't going to be like this. That's right? right? Uh-huh. That that of course that's not gonna work. Mm. Because you're you're just you're just you're comparing the real being that's in front of you mm. to some imaginary being that you've created. Right? And that imaginary being's not real, this one is. And to get in and, and, and this one can change form. Never underestimate the power of human being to transform no matter how dark they've gone I've seen it you know I used to volunteer many hours a week when I was young in a rehab center because Mm -hmm. I loved being around that uh, transformation of people who were going into sobriety going from like you know terrible drug abuse and all kinds of uh, delinquency to uh, beautiful beautiful light Mm -hmm. and watching that happen Mm -hmm. was very powerful for me and so I like to volunteer there a lot but You know, just don't underestimate that. But at the same time, to get there, you got to kind of, you know, that's the place where it starts is with that acceptance.
0: And so, would you say just to just to clarify? And I'm just, would is this sort of the perception of dark and light from a Zen perspective? Like, like what is dark energy and what is light energy in a in that realm?
1: I mean, from the from the absolute perspective, it's all just energy. Mm -hmm. It's not dark or light. It's just. It's just. It's just causes and effects in chains. Things things are happening, on the absolute level. There's no good and evil. There's not a there's not a dark. There's not a light. There's just energy, and they contain each other. Right? They contain each other. They try, you know, heat and cold. Cold is really just the absence of heat. And they tried the scientists recently. They're all like racing to be the first one to get to absolute zero, but they can't. They get to like point zero 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 seven, and the next guy gets to like point zero zero. But there's always a little white in the black, and always a little black in the white. You mm-hmm. can't separate, separate the yin and yang. You can't you can't uh, escape from it. And so, from an absolute perspective, right? Of course, that just because on the absolute level, those things, you know, life is not separate. Right. If you stop and just wake up a second, right. Where is there separation? Show it to me. (laughs) Show me the line Mm
2: -hmm.
1: between anything and anything. Show me the separation. There isn't any. Right? Right. Only conceptually. Mm -hmm. And even conceptually. You can, you you know, so enlightenment's more of an integration than an analysis, but uh, just because that's true on an absolute level doesn't mean the relative level doesn't have truth right on the one hand you know the, these atoms were in a star billions of years your atoms were in a star billions of years we're both made of the same stardust the air that i'm exhaling you're inhaling we're all the sounds that i'm making from my mouth are going into your ear we're mm-hmm. all a part of each other we're very much a, a oneness right but at the same time there's a relative truth in which I, i'm on the Wuda trip and you're on the srimati trip and those are different trips yeah and and that's that's the you know that's the uh, there's truth in both there's truth in the relative, there's truth in the absolute um and we need a bit of both in our life we need a bit of we need a bit of the like relative where we're motivated, and we need a little bit of perspective, like we you know it's like a journey through the mountains, you need the valleys where the there's work, mm-hmm. and then you need the peaks where you have some perspective and you can see a little bit further and you can map your journey you can you can let go you can be at peace you can see that things already are at peace mm. right the, the, the it's it's more of a the practice is really more of a letting go mm. it's more of a returning the old man said that in the Tao Te ching right the way is a returning it's a returning to the truth of things to the center of things to the nature of things as they are they're already peaceful it's it's mm. the energy is what you know it takes energy to make noise
2: right. los
1: angeles takes terawatts of energy to keep it so noisy you shut all that off and it just turns into the desert from whence it came and that's a very peaceful desert it was mm-hmm. before all the madness so it's really the 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 energy that that makes it and and peace is more of the like letting go but life's a balance of those things i think it's a balance of of uh, it's a balance of working in the relative, right? Manifesting in the in the relative, being embodied, mm-hmm. right? As a individual human being, right? And then also traveling to the place where there's absolute truth as well, and resting in that, and having that be a part of your experience, an informed part of your experience. Because if that's not informing part of your experience, you're missing out on a lot of life. You're missing out, you know. You then your all your individual fears, and anxieties, and arrogance, and, and self-centeredness are preventing you from understanding that like this this world this universe it's not about you
2: Mm -hmm.
1: it's not about you it's not about me it's a you know and and that's that that's there's a beautiful freedom in that in that that it's you know might seem conceptually like it's scary but it's not when you let go there's a lightness and a freedom and you realize that you're already free you're Mm -hmm. born naked you're gonna die naked we're mortal. Like wake up, you're gonna die soon, (laughs) and this is it, and 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 then you realize that wait a minute, I'm free. Like none of this has any weight at all. None of it matters, Mm. and I can be and do anything. And you stop writing all those negative limiting stories about yourself and others. Like I can't or I couldn't or I shouldn't or I wouldn't or I'm Mm. not able or I could never do that. Right, and you just stop writing those stories and let yourself be what you really truly are, which is free right now. And you don't need anything to be free. You're composed of it. That's, you know, we talked about earlier, if you get things in order, they come apart. That's because this world's made of freedom. Mm -hmm. If the world wasn't made through and through in every particle of freedom, it wouldn't have been free to roll and change and become and grow and ultimately arrive at the place where you and I are here. Mm -hmm. Right? But that also means that we have to surrender to the fact that because it was free to become this moment, to become a Srimati, to become a Wu, it will be free to take these elements and go on and make other things. So when you get into kind of a bigger perspective and a bigger viewpoint, you know, there's a, the enlightenment isn't just the awakening from the darkness into the light, it's also a release of heaviness. Mm -hmm. Because light also has the other meaning of being free of heaviness, being
0: weightlessness.
1: Yeah, being weightless. Realizing that, you know, my teacher used to say, "We're we're all falling, so turn and say we." <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I also just wanted to ask you to speak a little bit about, and you are you were you're already touching on it, but we were talking about um, the focus of death as a way of life, you know, Uh, in Barcelona, we had some conversations about that. And I think that that's, I mean, ultimately that's what we're all, you know, that's what humanity is avoiding. That's what they're running from. And that's basically the drive of of everything is, is fear, fear of death. And in the Western culture, there's, there's virtually no discussion of it, no preparation for it and no exploration of it. Uh, Um, and so speak to us a little bit about, uh, death as a way of life or, or, well, I mean, the journey.
1: Yeah, not, not, uh, not having a relationship or having a negative relationship to death is, is a terribly unskillful way to live. Um, and that's, you know, the, earlier you were talking about, like, as opposed to good and evil and sin. And this was something that took me, like, decades to shed that, like, heavily ingrained cultural socialization of sin. Because there's no sin in the East. But it didn't talk that way. He talked about like wholesome and unwholesome, skillful and unskillful, healthy and unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Right? This is healthy ac- actions. These are healthy behaviors. These are unhealthy behaviors. Not these are sinful or wrong, but rather unhealthy. Right? There's a whole different approach. Uh, you know, and, the, and certainly, if you have made death an enemy, you have a mighty foe indeed. Yes. And, you know, this, This I think Rumi said it best of all. He said one's relationship to death is one's relationship to God. The friend of God is a friend of death and the enemy of God is an enemy of death. Death is, uh, you know, if you had a time machine and you went back like 300 years, you, you could speak to any Native American on this continent and ask them what they want most in life and they would say a good death. Mm-hmm. Because a good death is a good life. Right recently I read this article where they had gone and talked to 500 people who were very close to death about their regrets in life And what was amazing is that of thousands of regrets none of them had anything to do with anything that I had done It was all stuff. They had left undone. They weren't ready They weren't ready to go And this is a difference between you know the native americans have a saying Hohotahe, Which means today is a good day to die today is a day to die when I on my last day, I want to wake up, I want to meditate, I want to make tea for some beautiful people. I've already done that today. I'm about to make some more tea, but, you know, and, and sticking around for one more tea is great. But if you're not in that place where you're ready to go, if, you, if you're not ready to release, if you don't feel like you're, you're doing what you were intended to do, if you don't feel like you're, you've fulfilled the purpose of your place on this planet and in relation to the people around you, if you have things you still need to say, then on behalf of your dying self please let me beg of you go say those things get to that space because it's you know it 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 is sudden it is immediate you have no contract for when it comes there's no way to know right so my my zen teacher used to always say zen isn't a toyota it's a maserati we go zero to 104 seconds right so that's the point if you If you watch like an old samurai movie or even a modern samurai movie like The Last Samurai and you see those samurais, they're like relaxing and watching the theater. It's like the equivalent of, you know, a Friday night with some popcorn and you're watching a movie on Netflix or something. And then all of a sudden like an enemy comes and within like, you know, three seconds, they're battle ready. Even though they're a little bit tipsy and they were just hanging out with their buddies. They're like, they're battle ready. And that's because of training. Right? And so... One of the things that my teacher used to say a lot that very impressed me, and I use it, I say it all the time in my retreats, during meditation sessions, during the like hours when we're practicing Zazen in the middle of the retreat, I'll say to the people, just like my teacher used to say, don't think for a second that this isn't a life and death matter. It very much is a life and death matter because we're all sitting here with our lives on the line. We're all dying. right? And this might be the last time you ever meditate. This might be the last time you ever see your beloved you you might walk out that door and never see them again Mm. right so if you don't have a relationship to death you just assume that it doesn't matter but it does it it does and you'll then you'll be that person with those regrets and you won't be able to release yourself you won't be able to release your body so having a good death where you can let go and release your body because you feel fulfilled means that you've lived a good life so they're they're very much they're they're very much intertwined and if you're not acknowledging and even I would say consciously contemplating your own mortality you're just walking around behaving as though you have like infinite time and and, and, and infinite health and in that you're going to you're going to squander the single most precious thing that as far as we know in the entire universe because the most precious thing in the entire universe is life. Bill Gates would trade all his billions of dollars for six more months of life. He'd probably trade all his billions of dollars for six more months of life for his daughter. Yes. There's nothing more precious. It's like, you know, the old Indian story where the blind beggar is sitting on a treasure box begging for coins. Because he doesn't know that he's just sat on a treasure box. It's like that. We're like that. We're like playing around and lost in trinkets and doodads and gizmos. Meanwhile, you're, you have in you the, already the, a life. You have the beautiful eyes and breath and body to experience life on this in this world, which is the most powerful, powerful uh, thing in all of existence, as far as we know. And so, if you're not in relationship to your mortality, then you live as though... There's infinite chances, infinite time, infinite right. This and there's not, and so your, even if it's unconscious philosophy, of, of like I'm just gonna ignore my mortality, that that way of life is going to eventually, very strongly butt against reality. Right, and when you argue with reality, you lose a hundred percent of the time, <laughs> and you're going to be in for much more pain than if you just look at it and face it, and be a part of it, and be a part of the way things are. And then, if I look at my mortality, every moment becomes much more of a precious gift. Every opportunity to, you know, to say what needs to be said, make sure, don't assume. Right, it's not you know because that person may be gone or whatever and and then you you know you realize like van the man says doesn't matter to which god you pray precious time is slipping away Mm. right so if you don't have a strong relationship to death if you don't have a strong relationship to your own mortality you you don't live well right so also you have to if you want to see the effects of this right even in the form of contemplation, right? We can do it right now. We got this brother here. We got you here, right? So I ask you, I invite you, what would you do differently if this was your last week on earth? It's a question. Yeah. What would you do differently if you knew absolutely that you have one week left?
0: I would live, I pretty much do this 100% anyway, I would be doing this right now. So This is extremely uh, loved and precious to me. Uh, But even even more, I'm always contemplating on how to get more in alignment with what is in my heart, which how have I been created. And for me, I'm an artist. So I want to express myself in art in music in writing, but in a very specific way artistically. And of course, you know, i none of my kids rich never walks by me that i don't contemplate his death my death my kid's death i'm very hyper aware of it always at, at every moment so um yeah but there's always more refining that could take place so again i would say it would be you know really clearing out space of of things that i've commu- i'm accumulated like energy or or just uh, obligations or things that we accumulate in our life things that, that can be cleared away so that i have the space to truly feel what is this chord that is srimati that is julie that that is i mean right before you came i said to rich we were making a smoothie but our conversation was okay if you've got three months and we did say three months we didn't say today but we said if you have got three months what are you doing like we had this little chat in the kitchen <laughs> so um you know i guess that that's a little bit of an insight
1: Right. So you see how you were, you know, because we started this conversation as like, you know, what, what, what is, the, what is the, the need for or the benefit of having relationship to death? So even just in this little conversation where you just said, like, if I had seven days to live, I would make more space. Then having that contemplation, having that discussion, right, helps reinforce the part of you that understands that that's real, that this isn't, that, that this hypothetical isn't made up there is a possibility that you have one week left and so because of that the contemplation and the discussion reminds you of that and it it helps motivate you to not only articulate which you just did beautifully to articulate what it is you would do differently but then to actually do it which is to say essentially right When I have, when I realize the looming mortality right there, I live more fully the way that I want to live. Right. And this is why some people maybe semi-foolishly, you know, flirt with death or like being in dangerous situations or near that edge where life takes on more, um, more meaning. Right. Mm -hmm. And that can be a path, you know, like the samurai, for example, who would literally tattoo peonies and fu- funeral flowers all over themselves because they they knew that they were most likely going to die on a battlefield and never have a funeral. So they would have their own funeral before, literally. They would ha- hold a funeral for themselves. Wow. Right? So if you... You know, so... It's kind of like, you know, staying young while the body grows old and if you die before you die then you never die
2: kind of thing <laughs> like
1: that kind of, that's kind of the essence of right. it right? right that's kind of the where it goes that's the extreme that's the place of mm-hmm. uh, if you let go of the self completely and die then you don't ever die so that's the kind of the ultimate extreme but even on a more relative level for ordinary people like me who are not at that level where uh, where where it goes to we can you know we can see that the con- even just a, a five minute discussion about our own mortality right, not only forces us to articulate specifically, right, what we would change, but it also then motivates that change. And you stop squandering this precious life, because you realize how precious it is. And if you're not connected to mortality, you're not going to acknowledge, articulate, and live in a way in which actualize a life in which you are honoring how precious
0: it is. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And, um, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, another question that I wanted to ask you to speak on is, um, talk to us about the way that the, you know, the trees have been in, on this planet for, I don't know, eons of time. And they, I think are masters of community and communication and, I view them as examples, as living examples of how to cultivate more community and more sharing and more connection in my own life. And so speak to me uh, about the trees as masters, as our our teachers, as um, beings that communicate and specifically related to the tea that you have uh, created your entire life around uh, with global tea hut or is it global tea sage hut now global tea
1: hut is the project that we were is the magazine and the kind of global community so we publish a magazine and people subscribe they get tea in a magazine you know with without advertisements and the subscription is donation based and so global tea hut is that kind of global community we have an app we have a magazine we have the tea going and people in 55 countries are drinking tea together every month and then tea sage hut is our is our center in taiwan so it's actually like building in Taiwan where we hold every month we hold two 10-day courses where people come and learn meditation and tea and uh, the courses are all free. So um, it's a great way to come and, and learn for 10 days and get a real immersion in a in a tea practice um, and meditation. As far as the plants, you know, it, it's it's even deeper than that because it's not it's not even about plant as teacher, it's 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 plant as self. We are plants. We are through and through, you know, the breath that you just took, that oxygen was made by trees, the water that makes up 50 to 70% of your body, is ma- Is all the fresh water on this planet comes from plants. All the energy that motivates you to move, whenever I move my arm like this, or you move your arm like that, that's plant energy. It doesn't matter you're vegetarian or not, it came from plants. It, whether you ate vegetarian, which I would suggest, of course, I wouldn't... You know probably be sitting in this house talking on this podcast if I didn't uh, <laughs> completely support plant based diet, but even otherwise, you know, even if you are, uh, I still love you, by the yeah. way, even if you are not eating a plant based diet, I still got mad love for you, and we do too. But, uh, yeah, of course, we, you know, that's that's back to what we were talking about earlier, right? About the, just the way forwards is love, and and uh, but you know, even if you're eating animals, those animals are eating plants, so it's ultimately. It's it's all plant energy, and it all evolved out of plants too. They were the first life on this planet, and we all came out of that, right? We are, in a very real way, we are the plants' decision to walk around. Mm -hmm. They were in council, and they were like, you know, we want to walk around, and so they peopled, and we grew. And a lot of indigenous languages even have even have this kind of vocabulary, like baby children are called sprouts, and like people are plants, and you know, like that. That that the, the Hopi, for example, very much know that they are corn. They are corn. They're the corn people, right? For like maybe forty thousand years, they've been there growing corn. So uh, you know, there's different timelines with the different archaeologists, right? But and corn's their mother, and they're all there. You know, when I, I one of the greatest honors of my whole life was to go serve to to Hopi elders, serve tea, and uh, you know, of course they they said well, we're going to drink, have the tea ceremony in the most sacred place in Hopi land, and of course that was the cornfield, right? It's because that's their that's their life, and so. We are plants. The plants are as necessary for your survival as any of the organs in your body. Mm. So you can live without a liver for three minutes. You can live without air for about three minutes. And so, you know, if there's not trees, if there's not plants, there's not air to breathe on this planet. And we don't do so well without air. And if there's not plants, there's not water. And we don't do so well without water. And if there's not plants, there's not food. And we don't do so well with food. Without food. So all these things, you know, uh, this is, they are very much they are us let alone being our teachers and, and so on a very deep and real level fundamental level the, the sprouting growing flowering seeding sprouting growing flowering seeding sprouting growing of plants is the breath and life and memory and wisdom of this planet mm. right and all life is, 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 is coming out of that we're all coming out of that we're in that we're in that sprouting growing flowering seeding sprouting growing flowering we are in that mm-hmm. we are that as well that is the life and the breath and the memory and the wisdom of this planet and it and so it's all of that for us and you know as far as tea tea is one of the medicines that puts us back in that understanding and that rhythm you know nature is always talking to us and tea helps us understand what she's saying we have to get back to that place where we can open the door of nonverbal communication both into ourselves and the intelligence of our own body learning what to eat and when to eat right because of what the body says not what the clock says right because this idea of three meals a day is an invention of a modern society it's not even that old really indigenous people don't eat three meals a day at particular times to eat when they're hungry like all animals
2: mm-hmm.
1: right when their body needs calories and then they'll fast for like a day and then they'll you know these the anthropologists used to ask some of the indigenous people in south america like why don't you gather more food and like store it you know and their answer was like i store food in the brother in the belly of my brother mm-hmm. like,
2: they just,
1: like they just they never had that attitude they would eat Right. And then they would maybe go a day without eating and then they eat and they, but they're never like, you know, it's not about eating when the clock says it's about eating, you know, what the body needs and when the body Mm. needs. And so you have all the intelligence of the body when you start listening to nonverbal communication, but also of nature. When I was young, I used to go to nature places and play and it was fun. But now I go to those places because I'm more awake and I've meditated. Those places speak to me so much. Mm -hmm. there's so much that they say there's so much to hear and he has taught me that language again the language of the world and when you speak that language you realize you are it you're not a being on it you're not an alien who came and like just is visiting for a while you grew out of it and you are it like any of the other beings and and plants and animals and then you know it's it's a shift in relationship and we have to make that we just start making that shift back to you know Away from land as property and land as resources and land as stuff and back to land as spirit, land as mother, land as nourishment, land as home. Hmm. How about that one?
0: I love that. Yeah. I think that's a great place to to stop. Although, you know, I have to say in light of the fact that this might be the last time that I sit with you, that I sit here and share this <laughs> sacred space with you and that we're on the podcast I did want to ask you, my dear brother, ah. if you would share your uh, experience of receiving your tattoo on ah. your skull. I,
1: my tattoo, you know, was just a, mm. a really beautiful. And if you're listening, Marco, I love you. Marco is this amazing Maori shaman, mm. and the Maori have in New Zealand have been tattooing people for like forty thousand years, and their lineage is really strong. And is mm. somehow, in some way. Uh, tea inspired these beautiful tribal people and uh, because they were very inspired by tea and by and because tea uh, tea practice had become part of, of of especially mako's life and mako actually was destined to be a part of the like tattoo lineage of the Mori people because he his name actually means tattoo in the sky so that's what his mother had named him and uh, because of that they were very 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 uh, motivated to put to, to kind of return that, to give, give them more re- and lineage and energy and power to back to T. And so they showed up like highly motivated to, to give me a tattoo. And they had already seen, like, I think through Instagram or something that I already had tattoos. So there wasn't like already a connection. So there wasn't a, like, a, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a strange thing, you know? So it, there was a real, uh, they had already been, the T had already gone and like influenced their life for many, many months. Um, and then, and then they were really turned on by it. In fact, the tattoo uh, space in these people's village is incredibly sacred, and one of the like taboos is you can't have food or drink in that space. That space is just for tattooing, and uh, and they started drinking tea in there. So that was like they made this exception, and this whole new thing had begun. And um, these brothers are amazing, and it devoted to to tattooing in a spiritual way, in the same way that um, that that were devoted to tea, they, the Mako had just finished in a long apprenticeship because they tattoo by hand so you can't like hold the gun and stretch with the other hand, you need your apprentice to stretch. So he had been an apprentice for years, like all just for room and board for food and the mat to sleep on. He had devoted his life to this um, and just keeping these these tribal indigenous ways alive, these, the, the language and the way and the, you know. and their highest tattoo is like their whole face and then it comes with this like huge responsibility to be like a, a chieftain amongst your people and and to you know put the good of the tribe above yourself and so that that lineage just uh so powerful and and they and the tea had become a very important part in their life and they wanted that lineage to kind of come back and be a part of tea and so they, uh, you know, g- t- tattooed my head and it was one of the most excruciating. And yet <laughs> we were talking about relationship to death. It's the same kind of thing. Like, oh, it's so painful and yet so blissful of experiences in my life. And, you know, I do honestly feel like that, that Maori lineage is now in me and in my tea. I felt it real strongly when it happened and uh, and, and very, very ever since. So I feel like, I've, you know. A part of New Zealand will always be a part of me, and and I will always be a part of New Zealand, and there's some kind of mystic bond mm. between those people and and myself, and uh, and a uh, really incredible experience to be tattooed by hand by one by <laughs> by such an amazing shaman, and uh, and and he he will forever uh, be in in my heart, and those moments will forever echo in in mm. in all there is. So. But that lineage is so powerful. Those people, you know, they've been there, you know, who knows how long. They 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 think maybe tens of thousands of years they've been doing mm-hmm. that. And that's the oldest art. It's the oldest, like, human, like, practice, you know, mm-hmm. going back to, you know, that far, 50,000 years, maybe not in that area, but other places in the world, you know, just back so deep into our roots. And, um, you know, a lot of it has, like, like tea, you know, it's become a beverage, it's become commercialized, it's become about getting tattoos of fashion know, of whatever fashion mm-hmm. or whatever right but these are people who are mm-hmm. like holding down the original like uh, essence of it the, the place where it really comes from the energy of why people did this in the first place and uh and the relationship between even the pain and the um and the channel to uh transformation that you can come that you can pass through
0: and tell me about the chanting in yeah they, they,
1: he, 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 there's a bunch of Maori chanting that goes on at the, the whole ceremony it's not like a you know it's not like a tattoo shop it's a tattoo temple and you go in there and there's chanting and there's you know it, the whole thing is done with the utmost reverence and respect and, and I, I of course have it's not my language so i don't know i'm sure all of what they were chanting was just you know spells of power and protection and mm. especially back in the day you know and healing too because they they use you know like boar tusk needles and back in the day like this was a you know this is a huge ordeal and passing through it so a lot of that I think is is also traditionally kind of bound up in 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 the like healing spells that they would surround mm-hmm. it with so that the person would be be healed by by the by the spells essentially of the shamans who are who are. Uh, channeling these symbols and the symbols Mm. are all like channeled as well too Mm. Uh, in my case they they were willing to make an exception that they had hadn't done and do a buddhist symbol so because it was it was a kind of meeting of two different (laughs) two two different lineage but but my lineage had already kind of gone and brought benefit to them so they wanted to like pay that back very very much and that's a you know that's a strong thing in indigenous cultures that like you know pay what you what you take you give mm-hmm. back something like and this was their greatest gift this was the center of their of everything it's it was the literally the center of their spiritual practice of the Maori people's spiritual practice was tattooing a lot of the pacific island people are that way so so for me it was um the mo- one of the m- most powerful experiences in my life and certainly the most powerful tattoo experience of my life <laughs> uh, so i changed everything and and um most most grateful to to Marco and to the, um, the Maori people in general for yes. for being it, making that connection and bringing the in, in, indigenous you know work I guess the, of healing the indigenous soul of this whole planet because we're all indigenous people mm. it doesn't matter what people you are you come from tribal people whether it's Asiatic or Germanic or Celtic or African it's a uh, you know we're all we all come mm. from tribes and we all need to heal that a little bit that indigenous soul in us mm. Mm. The, the aboriginal soul where again land is home right, right? that's what indigenous mm-hmm. means mm-hmm. that's what aboriginal means right it means the from that place
0: beautiful in the
1: home right mm. so
0: that's the most beautiful tattoo story i've ever heard for sure thank and you it's also an extraordinarily beautiful story um Wuda, thank you thank for you. coming on Divine Through Line and sharing the space with me. And you've been an amazing brother and loving energy and beautiful energy in my life. And I want to make sure that I say, I love you. I cherish you. I celebrate you. And I always feel your presence. Every time I'm drinking tea, I feel you. Mm. Uh, just I'm sure as thousands of other people feel you every day when they drink tea. And uh, thank you. Thank you for being uh, in a body and for having the devotion that you have to your God, your version of God, and for sharing your heart and your beauty with us. Um, It's truly beautiful, and uh, you are deeply loved.
1: Thank you very much, and I, I love you too. And I love all the people listening to this too.
0: Thank you. So if, um, if you guys want to join us in making space for, for all kinds of things, making space to connect and, and, uh, and going deeper, you can subscribe to Wuda's uh, globalteahut.org. Global global mm-hmm. And it's a donation base. And how it works is you'll get a tea and a magazine that's all sustainably produced every month as well as a, some kind of tea gift, um, some sort of tool or process, Um, and we all drink the same tea every month and that's how we connect through the leaves of the same tea. And we have over 54 countries, 55 countries drinking tea together. So, um, if you enjoy the conversation and want to join us and dive into the deeper aspects of tea, um, we will meet you there. And until next time, I want to thank everybody for your support on Patreon, for everyone who's donated and support my work in this expression of this podcast. It's an amazing medium. It's been incredible to meet with all of you guys all over the world. It's absolutely mind blowing. And, um, uh, just know that until next week, I'll be sending you and your families lots of love and blessings. So be well, have a beautiful week and I'll see you soon. Namaste.